Welcome! You're listening to Peaches Aren't the Only Fruit podcast, a podcast in which we discuss Amazon Prime's A League of Their Own. Now, Emma, this is a fantastic episode. I love it. I know you love it. Why don't we start off with a summary so that our listeners can remember what's in this episode? Yeah, and you know, Karen, I have to say, this is probably my favorite episode so far of the entire series. I love this episode. So let's jump into that two-minute summary. The Peaches have finally hit their stride. They're a winning team on the field with the championship in their sights. They've also become the talk of the town, and they're reveling in their newfound celebrity status. But there are twist turns and trouble on the horizon. They have to win the coming games. Some of their best players may get traded. Carson thinks Lupe wants to leave, but she's hitting for the other team in a way that Carson doesn't expect. Max gets closer to Bert and his wife. Bert's wife tells Max that things are dangerous out there for them, but they can't stay home all day, and really challenges Max to think about herself and her identity in society. So that's my quick summary. Wow, that almost sounds mysterious. I thought a lot of things in this episode were, well, not quite mysterious, but there was some comedic moments of confusion, and there was definitely dramatic tension and suspense of like, what's going to happen for the Peaches, for Max? For Clance, yeah, I thought this was a great episode. So why don't we jump into it? Yeah, you know, I'm afraid that I've said other episodes were my favorite, but this one is my favorite. And so if there were other favorites, I don't know, maybe they're all co-equal. But like you said, I mean, we hit a lot of the emotional notes. I mean, this is an episode that's very layered. It's very nuanced. We have tragedy. We have triumph. We have fear. We have love. So let's start with the best of, because, I mean, that's what everyone's here for, right? What are the parts that we loved? What was your favorite part, Emma? My favorite scene was when Carson was confronting Lupe and Jess in the speakeasy, a classic talking past each other moment. I loved everything about the bar. I loved the ambience that they built and Carson seeing for the first time this new world that's out there. But in this specific scene, it was Carson seeing Lupe with her arm around another woman from an opposing team. And Carson already was suspecting that Lupe was trying to get traded off the peaches. You know, maybe you can tell about it because I'm going to guess you like this too, because it was just so funny and so well written. Yeah, some of the things in A League of Their Own are hilarious. And I thought that one was just perfect. I mean, that was that very classic, as you said, talking past each other. Lupe's concern that she's been found out as a lesbian. Oh, oh, I don't know her. The picture from the other team being like, Shaw, I didn't know I would never do that to you. Which, by the way, is also kind of weird because I presume they don't know each other. I don't know. Maybe they like met at tryouts. But, you know, I love that. And I love that there's that little bit of improv. Listeners might not know, but the line about the height difference, who does what between Carson and Greta, that was actually ad-libbed. Really? Yeah. And I think it's hilarious because it's also kind of true. It's these inside jokes that queer women might make about something. So I agree with you that that scene was just so perfect. And really, it's a short scene, but for women that have had that experience, It's just a hilarious scene. I think that was also some of the best writing in the show because it was very witty. The writing was tight. The performances were tight. As you said, it was short, but it was so impactful because you saw in that moment Carson thinking, this is Lupe cozying up. She's going to be leaving the peaches, everything that they've worked for. And it really hits you that she's oblivious in this moment to the environment that she's in. And so I thought it was also a very revelatory moment for Carson. Frankly, I would have loved to see something like that earlier in the series. And there's a couple of things we're going to talk about today that I would have loved to have seen earlier in the show because I think they did a great introduction into really a lot of what the premise of the show is about. Yeah. Something else that I really like is Lupe's surprise to see Carson in the gay bar and Jess is not surprised. And Jess is kind of like, yeah, I always knew. I knew from when they went out during tryouts and then Carson fell asleep in Greta's bed. Will Graham, co-creator Will Graham, he says they actually did shoot that scene and it didn't air. And so everyone's really hoping that at some point these outtakes these deleted scenes, cutting room floor material will end up online because we'd love to see that. Yeah, I had no idea. I think that would be so great as an extra to see Jess finding them. 
Yeah, right. And there's been fan fiction written about that. Like, do Greta and Jess kind of lock eyes and this moment of understanding is shared between them? But another thing that we learn in the bar scene, and I think this is a really excellent opportunity for the show to directly address some of the criticism of, well, there weren't that many queer women in the league. When Carson asks, how many queer women do you think are in this league? And there's this idea of something between a third to half the players. And again, this is what we talked about on a previous episode, this idea of, yeah, there were tons of queer women in the league. This isn't just the show. This is true to reality. And I'm really glad that they were able to put that in there because I think they correctly anticipated that would be an issue for heterosexual viewers that might not know just how gay women's sports is. And again, it's something that for the commenters, the online critics who said, well, this is just being woke culture, blah, blah, blah. And we discussed that in depth. It's like, no, this is something that was factual, that there were many queer players in the league, even though they were not open about it at the time, even though they were not able to tell all of their stories at the time. This was just a fact. And again, this isn't creating something new through the modern lens. It's recontextualizing something that existed that we didn't get to see in the past and we didn't get to hear those stories. And maybe the way that it's told a little bit is putting a modern look at it. And as we've discussed on the podcast, there's somewhat of a tension between is this a historical piece? It doesn't seem like it totally is. It brings in modern sensibilities and language. But the baseline of, oh, there would be women who were involved with other women was absolutely 100% true. Again, just history. And historically, and even today, if you have a women's sports team, the chances are just so high that two or more of the players will fall in love. That's just how it is. It doesn't matter if you're writing in 2023 or you're writing something that's set in the 1940s. That's women's sports. And does that cause drama? You're an athlete. You've been on plenty of teams. It can. I have absolutely been on teams where it caused drama and it is very awkward when there's a breakup. It's very cute when they're together. And as soon as there's a breakup, oh, it's awkward. You know, that might bring us into a next topic that we want to talk about, which is Gretzen. This was another really nice Gretzen episode. There was a really poignant moment when Greta and Carson finally go on a real date. Carson tries pizza for the first time, which surprised me. I didn't realize that it was trying it for the first time ever. And of course, later in the episode, Carson uses pizza as a euphemism. But in this date scene, I thought it was so cute. It felt so intimate and special and sweet that they could be together. Even if the world didn't know that they were all together, it was one of those hiding in plain sight moments where they know what's happening in their lives, even if other people in the restaurant wouldn't have been aware of that. But there also was kind of a tense conversation in some ways during that scene, which it surprised me because I sort of wanted to just enjoy the moment of them together rather than get into friction. What do you think about that scene? Well, there's kind of two parts, right? We start off with this idea of, would you come back next year? And it's interesting because you've got these two characters that are supposedly so committed to baseball. And it's like, well, why wouldn't you come back? And thus we read between the lines and it's kind of more of a question of, hey, when the season's over, we go our separate ways. Would you be interested in restarting the relationship next season? And of course, Greta plays it off flippantly saying, well, I'm going to be a big movie star. And then, you know, And I feel like Darcy is probably ad-libbing that. I feel like we can sense when Darcy and Abby are just riffing on each other. I think what you're referencing particularly is this question about children. Mm -hmm. And Carson saying, I don't want children. And Greta saying, I do. For me, I don't read it as tension, but it's an interesting conversation to have on the show. When we think about why did they include it? For me, it shows that Greta is full lesbian because she says, I could never keep a man, never, ever. So she's saying, I'm full lesbian. I couldn't even, in essence, sleep with a man just to... Yeah, it made it clear she wouldn't want to have a husband around. Of course. But we have this idea that just because she's gay doesn't mean that she doesn't want children. Like, you can have those two things. Wanting children is not exclusive to heterosexuality. And then, of course, Carson, as the opposite of that, is in a relationship with a man. She has a husband, yet doesn't want children. So she's kind of turning that heteronormativity on its head. I think there are people in the fandom that are probably going to say, what an excellent opportunity. Carson could get pregnant by Charlie and then they could have kids. 
And I, oh no. Yeah, that's kind of awkward, isn't it? Because Carson just said she doesn't want kids. So is there a meeting in the middle? Does Charlie have to be the baby daddy? Do we set up a scenario in which there's a sympathetic man willing to help the lesbians out? I don't know. And in that sense, other than showing that Greta is full lesbian, I would be curious what the writers were thinking in terms of what we're learning as an audience from that particular exchange. I didn't really think that that exchange was needed to establish Greta as a lesbian because to me it seemed clear from other parts of the show that going out with men is something she does as a front. Going out with men is something that she does in public so that people can see her out with men and being very visible. But it seemed to me before like it was pretty clear that she has not had a long-standing relationship or is not seeking a long-standing relationship with a man and that she's talked in the past about having these deep relationships with women. You know, I thought with Carson, another thing that was a little bit confusing to me in that certainly, as you pointed out, you can be a lesbian and want children. You can be heterosexual or bisexual and in a relationship with an opposite sex partner and not want children. Totally all valid. But at this time, I kind of wondered, like, There have been other references that Carson has made that feel much more modern. Things like Charlie and I are going to save her house or I'm not sure if I want kids. I didn't feel like a woman at that time would have had that much agency. Not saying it would have been impossible, but again, going back to Carson being from this small town in Idaho where probably her parents and her grandparents were from, I would have expected she just was like, even if not on a farm but that she got married, moved into a house that was on her family's land or moved into a little house in town that they owned, as we've mentioned before, probably wasn't working and probably would have just been expected to have kids if she was physically able because women didn't have the same options for birth control in that time that they have today. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because regardless of whether you wanted or didn't want kids, birth control being in what it was and societal feelings about birth control, given Carson's age, realistically, she probably would have already had one or multiple children. Yeah. And obviously there is natural forms of birth control that people have used family planning methods for time in memoriam, but we also don't know what Charlie wanted. And the reality is that many women at this time would not have had that kind of agency If their partner, you know, a male partner wanted children, they probably would have been expected to have children and and also, frankly, make themselves available to have children. You know, that is just a reality of something that women would have had to deal with when they didn't have the options that they did today. And as we've discussed before, if you were a woman who was totally dependent on a husband for your income, for your home, for your status in society, and everybody around you had children, you probably would have just been expected to go that route. And it's something with Carson and Abby Jacobson being in her 30s. I think if you had a an actor who was maybe 10, 15 years younger, it would have been a little more realistic to say, oh, well, maybe it just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I want to interject just a fun historical tidbit about pizza. I had written a fan fiction for Archive of Our Own, and it was going into the pizza date and imagining what would have happened if the team had shown up. One of the things as I was writing the fan fiction was the question of how common was pizza or uncommon? Obviously, Greta had been exposed to it, but Carson hadn't. And so it kind of put me down this rabbit hole of when did pizza come to the United States? Going to my standby Wikipedia, before the 1940s, pizza was really just eaten by Italian immigrants or their descendants. It stayed in that community. And it was only after World War II when veterans were coming back from the Italian campaign who had eaten pizza in Italy that they actually started to spread more and it became more popular. But it was literally decades later that it really kind of exploded in the US, especially when you had pizza chains, your Domino's, your Pizza Hut, stuff like that. I had no idea. I just, this is something I feel like I should explore more and write about for my food blog because I grew up eating pizza I mean, so much. Did you grow up eating pizza all the time? We ate pizza every Friday. That was our special meal. I grew up in New York with a lot of Italian Americans and a lot of people whose parents or grandparents had been from Italy. So like the way that my mom learned to make meatballs. And I remember growing up close friends who were like family members and their relatives who were from the old country 
Yeah, we would eat very uh, American Italian style food. And that was just a regular thing. Going to a pizzeria, for me, it was every Saturday with my grandfather when I was a kid, we'd go out for pizza. So yeah, that's a really interesting fact that Carson potentially had not had pizza before. Yeah, she was a pizza virgin. I do want to step back for just a minute. I want to bring this back to something we actually talked about on previous episodes as well. I think it is so cute when Carson asks Greta on a date. It is just heart eyeball emojis. I am just melting. I think it's so cute. But on this rewatch, I had another emotion too, based on something you said on previous episode, which was, it is kind of awkward that Carson is a married woman whose husband is off at war and she's asking someone on a date. And there's never that moment of recognition. Again, it would damage the fantasy for the viewers that love Gretzen, that want to see that relationship to be like constantly reminded by the way she's married. But the truth is she is. And in that sense, the time that she spends in the house with Greta, it's a fantasy world for her. It's a fantasy world in which her husband doesn't exist. The societal pressures from Idaho are things that she can ignore. But at the end of the day, she is a married woman asking someone else to go on a date. Later in this episode, she mentions not wearing her ring. Max asks her about it, and it's clear that Carson is not wearing her ring around many places. You also, I think, see the contrast between those people who call her Mrs. Shaw versus the identity as Carson. I think you're right. It's obvious, and I think that the pizza scene gets at that, that they are kind of living in this fantasy world still where they're able to have this relationship and there's no strings attached. Greta also mentions recognizing that society is not kind to people like them. Clearly meaning that Greta has lived those experiences and we can only infer that Greta and Joe together have lived many experiences where they're moving around and where they've had probably other relationships that they haven't been able to live openly because of societal ideas. Yeah. And then the last thing I want to say about Gretzen specifically is going to the end of the episode, Carson convinces Greta to go to the bar. In script writing and screenwriting, when you break down the arc of a movie or the arc of a show, the midpoint, you have either false victory or false defeat. And we did see that in episode four. Well, in episode six, in our eight episode season, you kind of have a reverse. So whoever had the high two episodes now gets the low, and whoever had the low gets the high. But here, we think we're about to get another high from Carson and Greta because they walk into the bar. It's triumphant. They're holding hands. They're dancing. And it's cute. And they're meeting other queer women. And Joe meets someone. We're going to talk a little bit later feelings about what happens after that. But in that moment, it's a wonderful moment. It is wonderful to see Greta and Carson slow dancing on that floor in their dresses with that big height difference. I loved it. And yeah, we're going to talk about this later because this episode felt like such a high. And then I had really mixed feelings about the ending those last couple of minutes. For anybody who hasn't seen the episode yet, I mean, I think you have if you're listening to this recap podcast, but just remembering the first time I watched it, even the second time I watched it, I felt very emotional. I felt gutted seeing it. And I understand from a writing perspective. And as you mentioned, when it comes to the sort of cadence with which shows and movies are written, why it made sense and why it made sense to have contrasting emotions. But I really was riding this Gretzen high and I wanted to see them get to just enjoy that this episode. So that was tough for me. But I think there's a couple of other things that we want to discuss before we get to that very dramatic ending. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit, since we're here already, about the bar. I mean, here is this bar in Rockford, Illinois, which is clearly never was, never is, and never will be any sort of major population center. And when Carson gets to it, it's like a spy movie. There's the false front, there's this blue light, she goes in, and now we're in this magical place. But it's also tied into The Wizard of Oz. Like this entire episode is about The Wizard of Oz. Is this bar Oz? You know, I have to say, I was like super jealous because this was the coolest speakeasy I've ever seen. And I've never been to a bar that's that cool or that chic. I think actually that's a really good question about 
again, are we seeing it for what the bar was? Or are we seeing it for what the bar maybe felt like through Carson's eyes? Which is a really interesting question of the way that she would have taken it in and the magic there contrasted with the movie. And something else that I want us to talk about too would be another theme I noticed in this episode was Wizard of Oz obviously was a big theme. And then kind of a contrasting one with that was a number of mentions of religions, specifically with Max and Clance. But there was a little bit with the Peaches as well. But first, when it comes to Wizard of Oz, in the episode, Wizard of Oz is playing in theaters. The film came out in 1939, very classic, starring Judy Garland. Carson goes into the speakeasy where she's asked if she's a friend of Dorothy. Max and Clance, meanwhile, are seeing the film while Carson is at the speakeasy. This is the first time Carson goes to the bar, not when she's there with Greta. For people who might not know, friend of Dorothy is a term that's been used for gay men, recorded as early as World War II. Most people consider it to be a reference to The Wizard of Oz. Before the movies came out, there was a book series published in the early 1900s. One of the lines in the book was a character saying, you have some queer friends, Dorothy. And Dorothy, the protagonist, saying, the queerness doesn't matter so long as they're friends. Very much the movie has been seen as an allegory for queer experiences, but mostly centered around gay men. The sort of campiness of it, the star Judy Garland and her glittery yet tragic life is something that, again, certain parts of particularly the gay male community have really become attached to and identified with. As always, this is not all gay men. This is kind of only a certain slice of people, but this movie and Judy Garland were very important. And for people who maybe have not seen it, because now it's, gosh, 90 years old, right? Almost 100 years old. It's about this main character who is lost. She comes from a small town. She gets lost and it's initially set in this kind of sepia-toned, typical world. And all of a sudden, she is thrown into this technicolor world where things are fantastical. And she is on this quest to get home. And she makes these three friends who agree to help her get there. Some people view it as a heightened rendition of the experience that many queer people have of coming out, finding a community and safety and finding a new home outside of a biological family. So it was, I think, an important choice to use to reference queer history, but a little bit of an interesting choice to use here because, again, Wizard of Oz and Friend of Dorothy are much more typically related to gay men. Rarely have I ever heard it associated with women. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing because in this time period in the 1940s, I think there's a lot more language for gay men. There's a lot more, in essence, culture that's developed for gay men. So for the writers perhaps trying to find what language might have been more common in the lesbian community, there are actually expressions that they could have used. They could have used bulldagger, stuff like that, that would have been more, maybe more time period appropriate, but perhaps would be seen as degrading now. But yeah, for me, for me as a lesbian, my understanding of the lesbian community, of our history, is that friend of Dorothy would not apply to us at all. So it would be weird for someone to ask a woman, are you a friend of Dorothy? And I can't remember if Rosie O'Donnell's character Vi also says something about Dorothy. So we have what is iconically associated with gay men, this Wizard of Oz movie, Friend of Dorothy, and now we're applying it to a female context where Carson and Max within the episode are fish out of waters attempting to find found family right in this magical other place. Because for Max, her Oz becomes Bert's house in that house party. For me, I wish they had not... Perhaps there's no other movie like that, but just because of the strong association with gay men. Myself, if I was a writer, I would not have used that one. I think it's also interesting that we have this term that we don't actually know the exact provenance of it. And of course, we, there's all sorts of things in life that are like that. Mm -hmm. But we kind of try and historical sleuth our way and we say, well, gay men loved Judy Garland, so friend of Dorothy must be Wizard of Oz. But in fact, when you read, again, the Wikipedia page, there's also a slightly less popular theory that it's actually a reference to Dorothy Parker, yeah. who was a humorist, a critic, a civil rights activist, 
who had social circles in the 1920s and 30s that included gay men. So if you were a friend of Dorothy, it would be a reference to that Dorothy. I think either works. They work in a very similar way. And it really makes you wonder which of those two it is. I'm certainly very curious about that. And it kind of makes you wonder what the lesbian equivalent would be. Because we used to joke about that decades ago when I was much younger than I am today. It would be, are you like a friend of Melissa referencing Melissa Etheridge? A friend of Katie. Yeah, I was going about like, to about to say Katie Lang. Yeah, because lesbians, that attachment to an icon, I think is very different. There's not that same sort of, oh, this person had this glamorous yet tragic life. We're not clutching onto the tragedy and glamour. So yeah, I just don't know what the best equivalent would be. Something that we had been talking about offline was from a, an article I'd read from the BBC from 2019 about this biopic that came out about Judy Garland was the idea. This one cultural critic was saying that there's a gay culture, which tends to be more dominated by white men. And then the subcultures that are more dominated typically by women, by people of color, by trans people. And so Judy Garland, I'd say like Britney Spears, those kinds. I mean, Judy Garland's daughter, Liza Minnelli, they tend to fit more into, I think, this culture that's more visible, whereas some other parts of the subculture historically were not as in the open, not as accessible and not as connected. Something that's really interesting, I had wondered how common were gay bars in the 1940s? They're not even that common today. So 1940s, what would you really have been looking at? I think we can all agree that Rockford, Illinois, Podunk of Rockford would not have had its own gay bar, likely, if we're being historically accurate. But what we find is not all of the gay bars in the early 1900s were in major population centers. One was in Shreveport, Louisiana. Yes, you had them in San Francisco or New York, but you did have a few that were outliers. For the lesbian bars, again, as you just said, the gay men, they seem to have more cohesion than queer women in certain ways. And so one of the interesting things that I pulled up off of Wikipedia is one of the first lesbian bars was called Eve's Hangout, also called Eve Adams Tea Room. Now, it closed after a police raid in 1926. That's really impressive. There was already a lesbian bar in 1926, and that wasn't even the first one. But Karen, wait, people who commented about this show online told me that there were no lesbians. So I'm a little confused. There were no lesbians. <laughs> Gay marriage killed the dinosaurs. But yeah. And talking about that intersection of history and queer experience, when you talk about Shirley, the owner of Eve's Hangout, Ava Kochever, was deported to Europe and killed in Auschwitz. Yikes. Yeah. Ooh, I wasn't expecting that to happen. Yeah, plot twist. It kind of shows, again, this idea of intersectionality. You had a lesbian, obviously Jewish woman, who then was killed at Auschwitz because all of these things were happening at the same time. I was going to say, I also think part of this was a little bit of a missed opportunity to hear from queer elders in this show. In this episode, when we had Vi, Rosie O'Donnell's character, playing the bartender, which I thought was wonderful. Again, I wish we had seen the bar earlier. I'd wish we'd met Vi earlier. I would have loved to have seen this episode, the first part, be episode four of the series. And then that halfway point, when we're on a high, have episode five be the downfall. We get to know Bert better as well. And I think even though the show is obviously focused on queer women for the most part, maybe we could have had an opportunity here to have a gay man, to have someone talking about Friend of Dorothy where it would be more applicable and to have some of these elder characters talking about their experiences and their history and what things were like, because we get little glimpses of that from Vi explaining owning the bar and moving around and being married, but it's not official, but it's amazing. And then obviously Bert is also married, presumably not legally, but I would have loved if that had been explored instead of some of the plot lines, particularly what we're going to get into with a little bit about Max in this episode. And as we talk about Max, I think we're also going to talk about something that was explained to Carson, but more applicable maybe to Max about Butch Femme in this period. So one of the things that happens when Carson goes to the bar is she gets kind of a mini, I don't want to call it a lecture, but exposure to the idea of butchness. 
And then we have the implication of femme when Jess is like, you're in a dress, Greta's in a dress, and obviously Lupe and Jess are not. So I was kind of curious about this idea of when did butch femme become a concept or become common in the queer female community? And the answer is actually in about that era is when that really started to take off. It came from the working class lesbians. And so in the 40s, the 50s and 60s, butch femme really was the norm. Butch, butch, femme, femme. And by femme, femme, I mean Greta and Carson. Those were really, really uncommon and in some ways taboo. People were certainly not happy with people who switched roles. They were called kiki. They were made fun of and stuff. So we have certainly the roots of butch femme culture already at this time. We understand that Carson and Greta both would have been perceived as femme. And that leaves us into Max, because Max in this episode, this episode for her to me, it's about gender expression and where does she fit on that spectrum of butch femme. I think that's a really good point. With Max, we see that she cuts her hair short, but then she has a moment with Bert where a couple of moments where she's exploring, well, how do I want to be? There's at the beginning with the bowling alley where she says, well, if I was a man, then my life would be so much easier. I think we're meant to take that as her questioning her gender, but I really, when I first saw it, and I think this is because of how Max has been characterized during the rest of the show, I took it more as Max reflecting on the inequality of being a Black woman in this society. And then later in the episode, we see her talking to Carson, which, frankly, I don't totally get why Max would open up to Carson like this. It still feels like a little bit of a stretch to me that Max would be befriending Carson and be open when also Max has made it clear that she's had relationships with women before. And so in some ways, it seems like she must have access and knowledge of some community, but in other ways, she's looking to Carson for things. But she and Carson are also kind of talking about sexuality, gender expression. And then finally, at the end of the episode... Max is talking to Bert and Bert's like, you know, I gave you the suit. Where's the rest of it? And Max is like, well, this is just what I wanted to wear. This is how I felt comfortable being me. I thought, though, because Max hasn't been super developed as a character in some ways. I mean, really, as we've discussed before, she's kind of defined by her love of baseball. And that's most of what we know about her, her friendship with Clance. And we know some things she's really determined. She's really family oriented. But there could have been more room to hear about Bert's story. I would have loved to hear what was the catalyst for how Bert caught to where he was and what was his life like when he's going out and living in society as a man. How does he make that happen? Especially with his wife saying, yeah, we know it's dangerous, but we can't just stay inside all the time. So yeah, what do you think of that story arc? You know, I think it's totally valid to give Max this idea of trying to find her identity. How butch is she? But as you say, I think when you have a script, you have an episode, you have limited, in essence, real estate. You have limited time that you can give to any particular story arc. For Max, like you, I really wish that instead they had invested it in building Max's identity outside of baseball. We love Bert. We love Bert's wife. We would love more of that, more of that story. What if Max and Bert had done something together that helped us get to know Max better and hear more of Bert's story? Yeah, totally. There's nothing wrong with having this episode that deals with Max's own gender expression. And it's perhaps helpful to viewers who are themselves dealing with gender expression issues. But maybe they could have pushed that to season two. Max mentions that the first woman or when she was a teenager girl that she had been with, that it was really physical thing. And it wasn't a love story the way that Greta talked about a love story, but that this woman she'd been with had wanted her to be tougher and wanted her, it sounded like, to be more butch. And Max was like, that's just not me. And so as much as Max, I guess, is paralleling Carson in this episode of thinking about a new world and where she fits in, I didn't feel as convinced that Max was going through that internal struggle because of all the comments that we've seen and the way that we've seen Max throughout the show. It doesn't seem like she's struggling with her identity. It seems like she pretty clearly understands that she's a lesbian woman and that she's comfortable in that as much as she can be. But something that I also think would have been an opportunity to explore more that's kind of 
mentioned in this episode but not really gotten into is the role of religion. So in this same scene at the beginning, when Max is in the bowling alley, Bert's wife says, I can't believe that you're just walking around here looking like a little church girl in those skirts like you're 12 years old. And then Max goes home and she's living with Clance and Clance makes a mention of the Lord being their landlord. The Lord's everybody's landlord. I think it would have been interesting to explore more the role of faith and the church in Max's community and her personal life and the tension with her sexuality, because we see her at the very beginning of the series in this relationship with the pastor's wife. She mentions that she's had other relationships with women before. The church is brought up and the church is something that's obviously important to her family, important to her mother. We also see in this episode the announcer at the Peaches game say the Peaches have a connection to the man upstairs or Lady Luck. And then there was a line that Greta said about this. Did you catch that? Greta saying she doesn't believe in luck or God. I think it's probably a sentiment that many queer people have had, which is kind of like, if there is a God, how could God have done this? How could God have given us such a raw deal? And so Greta basically says, whoever this person is, Lady Luck or God, they can go kick rocks. Screw them if they exist, because we will have to do on our own. See, I think that's interesting because it really gets to this idea, I think, of is any sort of higher power a benevolent higher power? Because I think in Judaism, the sense is like, for Jewish people who believe in a deity, there's some wrath and it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And there's a lot of tests and stuff's hard and you're not just granted good things for being a good person. And I don't know fully what the sense of God would be like in, say, Max's church. But that's something with these references in the episode where I think they could have pulled that out more. They clearly were making mention of it. It was throughout the episode woven in. But I didn't get a clear picture of what we were supposed to take away from it. Yeah, when we talk about what characters could have played what role, there's something interesting, I think, about this episode in that Clance, who in every other situation is very supportive, very open-minded, in this one she's not. She views Bert as a freak. She is uncomfortable with Bert being in the home. If we thought that Clance was hyper-religious or something, that might have been a tie-in. That might have explained some of her behavior. Now, we can understand that a woman in the 1940s who's never even heard of someone being transgendered, yes, yes, of course they would be really surprised. Going to that scene, I think Bert probably would have come in and Clance would have probably been more like, what? Who is this? I think they didn't totally get to the sense of confusion because you're right. Has Clance ever heard of a transgender person before? Yeah, when Max says, that's my Aunt Bertie, you would think Clance would have been like, what do you mean that's a dude? Exactly, because we see Bert passing and living in society as a man. Right, and I do think there is tension there. And perhaps that's the implication. How much is Bert passing? But in the 1940s, we have to assume that Bert is passing extremely well, because otherwise, and myself not knowing the full history of how trans people have been treated, I would imagine it would not end well if you didn't pass convincingly. I did think that this was an unexpected episode for Clance. And something else would be Max mentioning that she's had relationships with women since she was a teenager. I'm presuming that they're at least in their 20s now, maybe their mid-20s. How did Clance never have any idea? If Clance clearly is attached to the hip with Max and they're basically spending all their time together... I understand when Max was sneaking out at night, living at her parents' house, and then going out and meeting the pastor's wife, but weren't there other times when Clance would have been like, hey, Max, where have you been? Or surprised that Max doesn't seem to have an interest in any guys or going on dates when Clance is going through this period where obviously she dated and got married. Yeah. Another thing that I think about is and I think this is probably a normal queer experience. It was my experience. If there's someone that maybe you kind of want to feel out to see how they would respond, I would expect that long ago, Max would have been asking Clance questions like, oh, hey, did you read that news article about the two guys that were caught making out? How do you feel about that? Probing and seeing when does Clance pull back? Because if Clance really is homophobic, 
that's one thing. But I would have expected that Max would have been slowly sensitizing Clance, testing Clance's boundaries and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I assume coming out to Clance would have been part of season two storyline. But realistically, I also would have thought that Max would already have some sense. Again, perhaps that's why she was so uncomfortable when Bert was around, that she already knows that Clance might be so open-minded on some things. But when it comes to sexual orientation and gender, that is a closed book for Clance. But that too, I think it would have been helpful, especially because we did initially have the church in the beginning of the show. And then we have these references to religion again. And there are mentions of the church in their lives. I think it would have been helpful to have because we also don't know if Clance is uncomfortable with someone who's transgender. But what's Clance's feeling about people who are gay or lesbian? It's just a big unknown. And I think they could have thrown that in at some point earlier. Even in the very first episode where the pastor's talking and said something, you know, made something more explicit of like, this lifestyle is wrong. I mean, the rhetoric that we're used to seeing that very often comes out of big institutional churches, unfortunately. I chalk that up as kind of a head scratcher, Clance's behavior, you know, there's more here, but we just don't know what it is. And then my other head scratcher, I just have to bring this up. Again, this small house in Podunk, Rockford, where did all these queer Black people come from? Did they take a train or bus into town for a one-night-only party where they get to engage in their gender expression and sexual orientation? It's kind of weird. There's so many people in this house. You know what this made me think of? When you were growing up, did your family ever have parties where people would come and they'd throw their coats into a bedroom or throw, not a house party, but like a home party? Yes. Was this a sort of thing that people did more that people don't do as much now? I don't know. Yes, I believe so. But I agree with you in terms of everybody coming out to this little town where it sounds like they just moved back to something that if I had my druthers, it would have made more sense to me for Bert to be, say, living in Chicago or living kind of closer to the outskirts of the big city where Bert is still close enough that Max could go meet him. But it's more likely that he's living somewhere where there's a community of people, where he can be a little more under the radar with things. At this time, at many times, being openly gay, being openly queer, being openly trans for sure, can be something that's very dangerous. But you would think it's more likely in the big city or somewhere that he could when he's away and not where the rest of his family can just go to the other side of town to find him, that that might be a little safer than being in the same town. Right. New York and Harlem would have been the epicenter, the safest place for Bert to be. And one of the party guests mentions Gladys Bentley. And Gladys Bentley, years before, had been singing on stage about women while wearing a tux. So there was certainly always more permissiveness in the big cities, and New York City in particular, for alternate expressions, even if it had to be at night in the dark. Yeah, and that's something interesting, because my family is from New York. My family is from New York City. And not to say that everybody had the attitudes that they have today, and I think the understanding of things that we have today, but definitely some of the attitudes anecdotally that I grew up seeing would be, well, yeah, there are just different kinds of people who are from different backgrounds, different religions, races. There are people who are queer, and they are just all here, and everybody has kind of come here to this space, and we're all kind of trying to make it. I think it's the difference between a place that's this is where people are from and we've been here forever and this is our land versus we're all kind of trying to make it in a new space and you're doing your thing and I'm doing my thing and we just are coexisting. That is a very optimistic way to put a city that once fought furiously over immigrants and other minorities. But let's finish up with our usual lightning round. So Emma, we both agreed we love this episode. What are some other things that you loved about it that we haven't discussed yet? Well, first thing I have to say, I think you're absolutely right. There have been very dark times in a lot of cities with what we see with race riots, with riots about queer people existing. It has definitely not sunshine and rainbows. So I definitely don't mean to say that. But I think that when you are able to have different kinds of people, different ideas can permeate that you're like, oh, that is what it is. Because even people of my parents and my grandparents' generation knew people who were queer, had friends, had people they worked with, 
people they taught, etc. And it was sort of like, eh, it just was what it was. But you're right. I mean, we are not today where we should be. And we can't take our foot off the gas to make sure that we continue to fight for equity, equality, more people being treated fairly and justly the way that they should be. But yeah, let's end on a lighter note. I wanted to say something that I loved again in this episode was the costuming. You know that's something I'm really into. The first scene, Shirley is wearing this skirt suit that I thought was so pretty. It was a very fitted coral skirt suit with these little flowers on the top. I just thought it looked so cute. And then they come back from the movie and they've left Esty at home. And she is so upset. But she was wearing, I think it was denim overalls. Do you remember that? Yeah, but also I was distracted by how devastated I was on Esty's behalf. That hurt. That scene hurt my soul. Have you felt like that of like, you've been left behind? No, I just felt terrible for her. Here she was trying to teach herself English to like fit in and trying to tell them I wanted to go. And Lupe just backstabbed her. It was just really sad. It was tough. And I do feel like everybody's had a moment where you're like, damn, the crowd left without me and I'm chasing and I can't quite get there. And to imagine being Esty who already doesn't fit in with everybody else. She's a lot younger. She doesn't speak English. Yeah, it was hard. But I have to say, she looked really cute in those little overalls. And I think that's a style that is back kind of in fashion now. So let me ask you, what is something else that you want to bring up that we haven't yet discussed? Well, I just want to circle back to something that you said and just kind of add my two cents on it. And it's when you said that you wished that the bar scene that final bar scene had been cut in two. I have to say, we haven't even really tackled it. I think because it's such a bummer, I feel like we're just talking around it this whole episode. We're talking around it because it was. It was terrible. I hated it on the first watch. I hated it on the rewatch. It is an awful gut punch. Let's just do it. Let's go. I'm going to get upset again, but let's go into it. It's so powerful. Vi's face being thrown down onto the bar, the breaking glass, the fear as everyone's scattering. From an artistic perspective, they've got that cut in to scenes of happiness. Max's happiness dancing with Esther at the party. I am with you that I wish they had not done that because when we talk about this issue of queer joy, they transposed queer joy with just trauma. It might make for emotionally powerful storytelling, but like you said, I wish that the bar raid had either happened Cut scene, Greta and Carson are happy and start of the next episode is the bar raid. Mm-hmm. Or the happiness at the bar had happened earlier and then they were visiting the bar another time and it happened. Just because it might be some book says this is how you write an emotionally powerful scene. But sometimes as the viewer, when you already have enough unhappiness, things that you know your community has experienced... You need a little bit of break. You need a little bit of happiness. And that happiness can't just be 30 seconds and then trauma. You just want that moment. Yeah, I agree. And the way that it came up, again, if you were to take this out of a best practices for writing emotional stories, very well done of like, we're feeling high. And then all of a sudden, the worst thing happens, the bar gets raided, everybody's being slammed. And then what really gutted me was Greta and Joe being broken apart. They are family. I mean, they're found family, but they're obviously family. And to think about someone you love like that, being pulled away in this scary situation, which we know Greta has been fearing, the whole thing just made me feel, I was tearing up. (laughs) I was like trying to not start crying. For me, what I would have done would have been split it into two episodes. Like you said, end on the high of them together. I would have started the next episode with the glass shattered on the ground, the bar turned over, turned it into a suspense of what happened. Bring the viewer into, we know that something bad has gone down, but now we're going to see it unfold like a mystery. Rather than making it that very visceral, painful moment to see people in pain. Because, yeah, I mean, I was like, man, I'm loving this episode. This is like my favorite episode. Even rewatching it, I was like, I love this. And then those last couple minutes, I was like, damn it. I feel horrible. I feel like garbage. Yeah. Again, for maybe heterosexual viewers that don't know what that's like to have that fear, to have the police break in and start destroying things, to know that Vi had absolutely no legal recourse 
that every penny she'd invested in that bar, she would never get back. All of it's terrible and everyone running and sitting in that theater, as Dorothy says, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, and everyone just being really freaked out. It's really rough scene. Yeah, and they also used it as a tension between Carson and Greta, because in the very end, they're watching The Wizard of Oz, and Greta pulls her hand away from Carson. In some ways, I can see why Greta was pulling back because of her fear of living in this world. But in the other side, you're like, might Greta want to lean into Carson for her support? If this is someone who you really love again, and then this other person who is also somebody you love, you know, in a different way, but like that Joe and Greta are just, they're like peanut butter and jelly. You would think that you might want to be like, Carson, I really need your support at this time. But it seems like Greta is seeing Carson as you led me to this horrible place. But ultimately, it's not Carson's fault. It's way bigger than Carson saying, let's go to a bar. And that kind of hurt too, to make it blamed on Carson when you shouldn't have to worry about going to a bar to be yourself. Absolutely. It does hurt that Greta's fears have been realized that she doesn't want to touch Carson. She doesn't want to be, in essence, associated with Carson. So let's end there. Let's end the unhappiness. Emma, final thoughts from me is that pizza really is that good. Not the euphemism, <laughs> that cheesy, doughy goodness. So good. What's your final thought? I want to say the as much as that last scene was hard, the song that they used, You Know I Love You by Tina Turner, I thought was perfect. I thought that was a good example of taking a song that wasn't from the era and the period, but putting something in that musically set the tone. And I think it was probably the best song use in the series so far. But yeah, on a lighter note, I do love pizza, the food pizza. It's great. What's your favorite pizza topping? Pepperoni. Me too. That's why we're friends. That is why we're friends. All right, Emma, <laughs> tell our listeners where they can find us. You can find us at P-A-T-O-F podcast on Twitter and on Instagram. That's at P-A-T-O-F podcast. You can also find us at podcast in progress on Tumblr where we are posting all about Gretzen. We're posting show memes and GIFs and those sorts of things. Do you call them GIFs or GIFs? It's obviously GIFs. Hard G. Okay, I agree. You can find Karen at Les underscore dish. L-E-Z underscore dish. You can find me, Emma, at Plateless Ordinary. Final announcement. I actually tweeted this week a list of every single lesbian web series that I could find online. This is actually the most complete list that exists. It's even got more than my friends over at Leswatch TV. So it's about 306 web series right now. About 219-ish are on YouTube and about 242 are free. So for people that are missing that queer content for a league of their own and want to watch something else, I've got the link that is in my tweet history, you can go to, it's a Google Sheets document. It's also editable in case I miss something that you know of. So find more queer content, support queer creators, and please do not engage in piracy. Damn, Karen, putting in the work. Awesome job. Thank you. That is it for today's episode. We will see you guys next episode. <laughs>